Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show. I am in Jerusalem. And I am in New York. The voice that you heard that said, I am in Jerusalem, is Mayor Grunberg. And, and my name is Isaac Simon. Better known as Not Mayor. Welcome to another episode of the Two Tall Jews Show, Season 3, Episode 4. Today we are featuring the one and only Rabbi Stephen Leader. Rabbi Leader hails from Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, California. He's from the Midwest, part of the vibrant St. Louis Park Jewish community, and he has been a senior rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple out in California for several decades. In addition to presiding over a very large congregation, Rabbi Leader makes frequent appearances on both TV and radio and not only talks about Judaism, but talks about the intersect between Judaism and grief. And that's one of the topics he discussed with us when we had him on. His father had recently passed after a long battle with Alzheimer's. One of the things he talked about was at the time of his most recent book, The Beauty of What Remains, how our greatest fear becomes our greatest gift. Right. So we hope you enjoy the interview. But before we get to the interview, we wanted to have a quick chat, a quick kibitz, as Isaac and I like to call it. This weekend, the weekend of May 20th, as of this recording, I'll be visiting New York. Uh, Isaac and I will be getting together. Not sure if we'll do anything content-wise. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. This Sunday is the Israel Day Parade. So you can find me there. I will be in the parade with Nefesh Benefesh. I know that the New Zionist Congress is going to be there. The Blake Flayton folks and the Isaac Castro's. <laughs> no, not jokes aside, we actually do love those guys. They do really good work. Um, but I believe that they are also planning uh, sort of a meetup at the Israel Parade. So if you are in New York, let's try to make it out there and show some, some Jewish and Israeli pride. So yeah, this week we wanted to discuss some of our posts that are coming out this week on the On This Day in Jewish History page, which hopefully you follow. And this is not news that we are behind this page. Some of the things that we have coming up, you want to go through them? Absolutely. So the following is stuff that is both taking place and also stuff that we are putting out and sharing content-wise. So we have Ellie Cohen, an instrumental figure in Israeli history who was sadly executed on this day in two days from now on May 18th. On that same day, we have the anniversary of the night of the Israeli Black Panther demonstration, which also took place in Israel. So check out some story action uh, with that towards the end of the week. And last but certainly not least, this Wednesday, if I recall correctly, is Lag Baomer. Indeed, Wednesday night through Thursday, which two years ago was the first post on the On This Day Jewish History. The first On This Day post was, was Lagba Omer, which coincidentally happens to be a holiday that we traditionally light bonfires to commemorate the soul of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. To learn more, please, we encourage you to listen to last year's Lagba Omer special with the two chassids in a pod, which we'll definitely be sharing once the day comes. But yes, so the same day that we traditionally light bonfires is the same day that our bonfire of passion and education for this project was lit. Yeah, the spark ignited and it's been a flame that's been running for two years ever since. Yes. And... Yeah, I guess I'll pose the question to you and then I'll answer it. So we still have a day or two to process some more thoughts on this, but where are you at, Mayor, when you think about that phone call you made to me back in early May about a possible idea and we riffed for maybe an hour and then we just sort of began not knowing what we were beginning? It's kind of crazy. I wish people would invite us in their podcast to talk about this more. We've had a couple of interviews, but if you're listening to this and you have a podcast or you know someone with a podcast, uh, we're always happy to come on other people's shows. We always enjoy that. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy that I remember perfectly. It was the middle of the height of like COVID of like people, May 2020, people had no idea what was going on. I was living outside of my house, very close to my parents' house. Um, and I, I would go for jogs around this really nice neighborhood. And yeah, I remember calling you on one of those jogs. I was just walking for, yeah, for about an hour. And we were just talking about different ideas. I wish we had that conversation recorded. <laughs> But no, I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I knew I had multiple pieces in my brain that kind of clicked with this idea for On This Day in Jewish History. At the time, you didn't really see a lot of Jewish content. 
like organized Jewish content in the way that you see it today. I think that that really came about in that summer, like just two months later, I remember there was the issue with Deshaun Jackson and Barry Weiss and all these different things that kind of obviously constant issues with like major Palestinian accounts that were inciting. Uh, Jewish on Campus was born that summer. Jewish Pride Always was born that summer. Jewish Perspective was born that summer. I think a lot of people took to TikTok as well. That's like Ellie Cohen and Adiel Cohen. Um, you had these like really awesome Jewish activists that were not activists. They were just kind of like us wanting to share something, wanting to talk to the world about what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be Israeli and what it means to remember the Holocaust, all these different things, what it means to be a Jew on campus. It's interesting how we kind of rode the wave before it was a wave. Yeah, you were part of the genesis of all those organizations um, forming. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot that those organizations all sort of formed or began. Well, some of them aren't even organizations. They're just individuals with right, accounts, right? Those projects. Yeah. And it's interesting. From May 2020 to now, May 2022, I've been in two relationships with two different Jews. And throughout those relationships, I've talked to Mayor the most. Yes, you are my work wife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as of January of 2022, we incorporated as a Jewish original media, which we've spoken about, at least when it comes to like what people see of us on social media and stuff. It's, you know, we have the page that we it used to be OG Yid, our meme page run by my good friend Leon Fagenblatt. Shout out to the Fagan man. Maybe he's listening, maybe he's not. Uh, make sure he listens to this episode. But we're taking this seriously in a way that, you know, we have a lot of ideas that we've mentioned. We have a lot of things that are going on in the background while we have our other day jobs and such. But a lot of this goes beyond podcasting and goes beyond making a, a history post. We're trying to educate the next generation. And sometimes I can get lost. And I think this is kind of a message maybe for all these accounts that we just talked about. Kind of the message sometimes might get lost in the desire for likes and for followers and for engagement. Obviously, sometimes it's right to be mad when you're getting shadow banned. There's some accounts that do really good work and nobody sees their work because Instagram decided that it's not okay or whatever. Uh, it's hate speech, whatever that means. Like what's hate speech to them in that case? And then you, you'll report like a virul virulently violent anti-Semitic comment and they'll tell you we reviewed it and there's nothing wrong here. And so you're just like, what is happening? But I think we have to kind of look beyond what we're doing. And it's not about the likes as, as amazing as it is to see a post do well, a lot of these young people are looking to us to be that light. And sometimes we need to take a step back. I think even within those moments where we're sharing, I think sometimes people overshare and we have to like, sort of like lean to the experts, lean to the sources, link properly, don't jump to conclusions. There's so much nuance in everything that we talk about. There's so much nuance in everything that's going on every single day in Israel. And, you know, sometimes Israel fucks up, sometimes Palestinians fuck up, sometimes an external factor fucks up. I'm just bringing this up specifically because it's like the one thing that I feel like a lot of the Jewish accounts don't always get right. I'll include it sometimes, maybe. So I just went on on like three different tangents there, but I don't know if you wanted to add anything. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the only thing I'll add is that on the stay in Jewish history is a manifestation of a process that's never ending and always ongoing and making mistakes and revising those mistakes. And we've had several posts where someone who might know more about a topic will comment in the comments and apply constructive criticism. And we really appreciate that. And we get a lot of the other stuff too, but it's about the process and appreciating that process. And as like an archivist in the making, I view archives document that process. And to be part of other historical based accounts, which dive into sensitive issues, and provide the care and concern that's necessary to do justice to the history and to the Jews and non-Jews who were privy to that history when it happened is something that we always strive to do more. You know, our ancestors made the sacrifices. The least we can do is properly tell the story. There you go. So we look forward to the next two years. We hope you celebrate Lagwomer safely. You might be hearing this after the fact. So we hope you had a great Lagba Omer. 
Thank you so much for following the podcast and on this day in Jewish history. And please stay tuned to the Jewish original media page that we'll be activating soon. We're going to be introducing some, some branding there that going to kind of give everything a new face, fresh new look, a, a completely a new look for Jewish original media, which doesn't have a logo yet as of this recording, but we're finalizing it as we speak. And then in addition to what we mentioned in a couple of podcasts ago with the geo timeline that we're building with the World Jewish Congress, um, which we're very excited about that will bring all of this historical content into a user-friendly database for everyone to use. And the page will remain alive and will continue to grow, but it'll at the end of the day be a channel to this resource that we you know we were excited and we're happy and we're honored to be working with the World Jewish Congress to build as part of their next gen inc incubator. So that's it from us. We hope you enjoy the episode. We hope you enjoy the interview with Rabbi Leader. Any any last words? Yeah, we hope you enjoy the episode with the Rabbi Leader and it's a great interview. I mean, I thought it went really well. And without further ado, here's Rabbi Leader. But before that, here's a quick ad from our friends over at Unpacking Israeli History. When many of us hear Israel, we instinctively flinch. In conservative and liberal circles alike, suddenly it's political. It's a screaming match. Everyone throws around loaded terms like apartheid, occupation, terrorism. So either we have these massive fights or we shut down and avoid the conversations entirely. But what if there were a better way where you could think and discuss Israel respectfully and with depth and nuance? In Unpacking Israeli History, Dr. Noam Weissman, history buff and passionate storyteller, is diving into that complication. You can go back and binge all of the first two seasons and great news, season three just started. So join Noam as he explores stories like the deadly Mossad operations, the Jew who colluded with the Nazis, and a bloody massacre in Hebron 20 years before the founding of Israel. In each episode, Noam takes you into the guts of the story, what happened, why it happened, why it matters, and how each of these stories is still impacting the news today. And next time someone brings up Israel, maybe you won't duck and cover as arguments start flying around you. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Fun fact. Noam was also our first guest ever on the show. So when you listen to the show, make sure you let him know how much you love our show as well and that we sent you there. And with that, enjoy the episode. I think people are perfectly capable of watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox, of reading the Wall Street Journal, of reading the New York Times, I think people are getting a lot of information, including Jewish information from a lot of places. I always remind people that it's called a sanctuary for a reason, and that I want the synagogue to be a sanctuary from that polarization and friction. And so I tend to address those issues in ways that are deeply connected to Jewish tradition rather than the daily headlines. So for example, during the period of civil unrest, I didn't talk specifically about race relations in America. I talked about the dangers of objectification. I talked about Buber's I and thou. I talked about the danger of not seeing the humanity in another person. Now, we can all agree with that without getting into which party is right, which policy is right, who deserves what, when, where, why, how. So this approach has enabled our congregation to actually grow and be more productive rather than doubling down on social justice per se. I have made sure we've doubled down on social welfare. Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by the On This Day in Jewish History Instagram account, jewishoriginal.com, and brought to you by Best Shop Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshopproduction.com and get a quote in your next video project today. Just one more note, we, um, we have our website, jewishoriginal.com. It's where you can find our posts off Instagram, and you can also see our store to help support this podcast and all of our projects. We are the two tall Jews, and we are ready to go.
On today's show, we are pleased to have Rabbi Steve Leader of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. A graduate of Northwestern, Rabbi Leader received a master's in Hebrew letters in 1986 in his rabbinical ordination from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati the following year. In 1987, he joined the Wilshire Boulevard Temple and has served as the congregation's senior rabbi since 2003. He is the author of four books and most recently, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. His writings have appeared in the LA Times, the New York Times, and the Jewish Journal. In addition to his rabbinical duties, he has taught homiletics at Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles and is a regular contributor to television news programs. Like the Cohen brothers, Tom Friedman, Peggy Ornstein, and Bobby Z, Rabbi Leader's esteemed accomplishments as a teacher, scholar, and author have earned him a rightful place among the prominent St. Louis Park Jews of his generation. Whether it's using his pulpit for impassioned sermons or penning his thoughts through books, podcasts, and television appearances, Rabbi Leader's steadfast commitment to Jewish learning through mutual understanding and shared experience has served as a shining example for Jews everywhere. Rabbi Leader, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be with both of you today. So can you speak a little bit about your Jewish upbringing in the Twin Cities and how you made your way out west? Sure. You left Al Franken off the list of the esteemed graduates of St. Louis Park Senior High School. I grew up in the first ring of suburbs around Minneapolis called St. Louis Park, which was affectionately referred to as St. Jewish Park <laughs> with a rose in bloom on every block when we were kids because the neighborhood I grew up in was, just to give you a sense of my street, on Decatur Lane, there were about 30 houses and I would say 28 of them Jewish families. So I walked to school in the morning to the school bus with, I'm not exaggerating, you know, 70, 80, 90 Jewish kids just from my street. I grew up in this Jewish ghetto, really, of St. Louis Park. Now, there were parts of St. Louis Park that were entirely Gentile, and there were parts that were almost exclusively Jewish, and I grew up in the latter. I had an eclectic Jewish education growing up. When I was a little boy, I remember nursery school, three, four, five, six years old, we belonged to a conservative synagogue called B'nai Abraham, which was actually the place where the bar mitzvah scene was shot in the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. On the Torah reading table, on the laning table, by the way, named for my grandparents. That movie, A Serious Man, was a pretty accurate but slightly hallucinogenic picture of my childhood in the 60s and 70s in St. Louis Park. Then I went to Talmud Torah. So in Minneapolis, there's this institution called Talmud Torah where Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox kids all went to an after-school program two days a week. And it was so Jewish, my elementary school, that the Talmud Torah had buses waiting for us when we left elementary school to take us to the Talmud Torah. Then, because I wasn't learning much in the Talmud Torah, my parents had me and my brother tutored by the Chabad rabbi's wife twice a week. And then for reasons I don't quite understand, but probably had to do, you know, I'm one of five and I think my parents were just at their limit in terms of schlepping kids around town. We joined the Reform Synagogue, Temple Israel of Minneapolis, I think because it was just a one day a week religious school program. And I just loved the synagogue always. And I loved being on the bima for my bar mitzvah. I loved being up there. I remember for my Devar Torah, I wrote my own anthology of poems and I inflicted my 13-year-old poetry on people. When I was 14, I got into a little bit of trouble. So I was arrested when I was 14 for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums at Target down the road with a couple of the guys in my band. I played drums in a band. And my parents clearly woke up and realized I was probably heading down the wrong path. And ended up sending me to a Jewish summer camp in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. It's the Reform Movement summer camp in Oconomowoc called Olin Sang Ruby Union Institute Camp. It was not a great name for a camp, but it was an extraordinary Jewish experience. From the moment I stepped off the bus, I fell in love with all of it, with everything. The music, the gardening, the pretty girls from Chicago with flowers in their hair for Shabbat, the counselors who were these cool hippies who were into the music I was into, and maybe most impactfully, it's the first time in my life I ever saw rabbis who wore t-shirts and shorts and could throw a baseball. I had no idea rabbis could be quasi-normal people. That was a revelation to me because my rabbis prior to that were these old scary men in black gowns, and they were just not approachable. 
And then here were these guys who I now realize were in their 30s at the time, early 30s, some of them, and they were cool. And they were also interested in the world of ideas. I grew up in a working class family. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Iron and Metal. And I wouldn't say I grew up in an anti-intellectual house, but I grew up in a non-intellectual house. The world of ideas was very attractive to me. Um, my dad went to work in a uniform every day that said Len on it. And I remember thinking as a kid, wow, if I could someday have a job where I wore a suit and a tie, I mean, that would be making it. Now I hate wearing suits and ties. You know, I was naive. But that summer at that summer camp changed my life. And that's really where the journey deepened. From there, I went to Israel at 16. And I went to Northwestern, took as many big studies classes as I could while still majoring in writing. And then I went right to HUC, right to Wilshire Boulevard Temple. And I believe I'm the only rabbi left in my graduating class who is still at the same pulpit where he or she began. How did you get to the Wilshire Boulevard Temple? Like, how did that work? Was it like yeah. you, you developed some relationships when you were graduating or? No, actually the way it worked back then and still to some degree does today, graduating from rabbinical school was kind of like graduating from a law school. In other words, all of the congregations who were interested in hiring a new young associate on a given couple of days would come to the campus in Cincinnati, and they interviewed everyone who wanted to sign up for an interview with them. And then there was a, a narrowing down process where the congregations would decide who they wanted to fly out for a second interview and to meet people and see the place. And back then, the rule was there were only three days for callbacks. Because the fear was that a couple of graduates would be holding 20 opportunities and nobody else would be interviewing. So I was invited back to a lot of places and I had to narrow it down to five because I could only get to five places in three days. And I remember drawing on a map back when we had maps. <laughs> and I went Chicago, New York, Miami, Houston, LA. I just made this efficient circle around the country so I could go to an interview in five places in three days. And Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles was just the place where I felt most at home. I felt it was the most aspirational. I felt the senior rabbi at the time, a, guy, a wonderful guy named Harvey Fields, was the guy who would teach me the most and was the most interested in teaching me something. Some of these senior rabbis were just looking for somebody to deal with the youth group in the Sunday school and leave them alone. But Harvey was really interested in helping me develop. And so I made the decision and it turned out to be the right decision. You know, it's been a really good marriage now for almost 34 years. Love it. So, you know, we try to talk about current events and current issues in Jewish life, but, you know, we also like to infuse the historical aspect. So speaking about Reform Judaism, historically started in Germany, Abraham Geiger, right? I think we just posted Correct. about him. That's um, right. And then it made its way here. You mentioned Rabbi Isaac uh, Mayerweis, right? Mayer named, named after the two of you, of course. <laughs> yeah, we actually did a little trip. This is not connected to my question, but we did a little trip from, from Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, visiting the oldest synagogues and the one in, um, where was it, Brunswick? So apparently the Rabbi Isaac Mayerweis founded. Isaac Mayerweis was, yeah, he was there at the founding. So it was the only one that we were able to get inside, which was nice. So obviously, you know, it's evolved. The conservative movement came as a result of the reform movement. Correct. How has it evolved since you were young? And what do you think is sort of some negative and, and positive things that you see in the future? Well, I should begin this answer by telling you that a little over 10 years ago, I made the decision to withdraw our congregation from the Union for Reform Judaism. And I have never to the media or publicly criticized the reform movement for the reasons that we left. I will just tell you that I felt that the movement was failing, dying, had lost its way, had poor leadership, and wasn't really interested in, no pun intended, meaningful reform. So we made the decision to pull out. That being said, I am a product of the reform movement. Absolutely. That was a reform camp that changed my life. And I loved my reform synagogue. So let's start with the positives. First of all, the inclusion, the full and complete inclusion of women in Jewish life from a reform perspective, I think is something historians will write about a thousand years from now. To realize that 50% of the Jews in the world throughout history were relatively disenfranchised from the Jewish enterprise is really a deficit that the reform movement changed. And that's something to be very proud of. Now, I think we have the opposite problem now because the pendulum has swung too far. You know, I remember a rabbinical student asking me about our hiring 
practices and say, well, how are you doing with balanced and inclusive hiring? I said, not that well. If I wanted to balance things, I'd have to go out and fire a bunch of women and hire a lot more men because the men have been for various reasons, um, distant, gone, absent uh, from reform synagogue life in many ways. And I think also in the seminary, I think they just lost control of the admissions process. So I think we've lacked some balance there, but on the positive side, the full and complete inclusion of women, I think historically will go down as one of the greatest things. I think the idea to innovate a prayer, the new prayer books, the flexibility, the music, I think these have all been very positive and absolutely the network of reform camps. Let me tell you something. If you polled my class of rabbinical students our first year, there were 70 of us and asked how many of you are here because of an experience at a Jewish camp, I think 67 or 68 of the 70 of us would have raised our hands. I don't think there would have been a generation of reform rabbis or reform Judaism without the camping movement. One of the reasons I came to Wilshire is because we have our own camps and I so believe in Jewish camping. So I think the camping movement, while again, a German import, you know, the German youth movements always had these camps, non-Jewish. So the idea of summer camping for kids is actually another German import. But so the inclusion of women, the camping program, the flexibility and creativity of worship and music, all I think fundamentally game-changing and very important. And I think the social justice agenda, the tikkun olam agenda, at a point was also very instructive and very important. My personal feeling now is that the movement has become ever more singular in its focus and ever more kind of a one-trick pony, where, you know, the joke about the reform movement is it's the Democratic Party with holidays. So I think that synagogue life has diminished under the URJ. I think most synagogues are failing or struggling. I think there's not a lot of there there in some cases. I think the number and quality of people coming out of the seminary, honestly, has diminished. I do not think that intermarriage is the greatest threat to Jewish continuity in America. I do not think anti-Semitism is the greatest threat to Jewish continuity in America. I think the great threat to Jewish continuity in America is boredom. I think most Jewish leaders and most synagogues are boring. That's the enemy. Boredom is the enemy. So we need to invest much more in finding, growing, recruiting, talented, creative, fantastic Jewish professional and lay leaders. Because without great leadership, it'll be death by boredom for American Judaism. So you preside over a congregation that encompasses over 2,000 families on three different campuses, close to 3,000. So how do yeah. you both balance and combine your vision of Judaism with the needs of your congregants? Well, let's start with the fact that there's never been a Judaism. There have always been Judaisms. And we make room for that within the body politic and structure of the synagogue. So we have two day schools where second graders can chant Torah. And we have intro to Judaism classes for people who know nothing. And everyone's welcome and everyone matters. So we try to program for a very diverse group of Jews. I think we are probably, this is just a guess, the most heterogeneous congregation maybe in the world. We have all kinds of Jews from all over the place, spiritually, theologically, educationally, economically, a third of our families, for example, pay almost nothing to belong to the congregation. So we have tremendous economic diversity. You know, we have elderly women who take three buses to get to the temple, and we have billionaires who are driven to the temple. And it's a place that welcomes everyone. Part of the way that I've been able to create that environment is not only by what we offer people, but what we avoid. And this is, I think, a really difficult but important topic for us to talk about. It's no secret that the American ethos is a highly polarized and contentious one right now. And the Jewish institutional organizational ethos always reflects the larger majoritarian ethos. What does that mean? That means we have synagogues that are polarized and contentious. So while the ultimate ideal, the real definition of peace is a place not devoid of conflict, but a place where conflict is settled with dignity or discussed with dignity and respect. That's the highest ideal. I don't think that's possible to achieve right now. And so I have opted for second best, which is 
to keep politics out of the shul. I think people are perfectly capable of watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox, of reading the Wall Street Journal, of reading the New York Times. I think people are getting a lot of information, including Jewish information from a lot of places. I always remind people that it's called a sanctuary for a reason and that I want the synagogue to be a sanctuary from that polarization and friction. And so I tend to address those issues in ways that are deeply connected to Jewish tradition rather than the daily headlines. So for example, during the period of civil unrest, I didn't talk specifically about race relations in America. I talked about the dangers of objectification. I talked about Buber's I and thou. I talked about the danger of not seeing the humanity in another person. Now we can all agree with that without getting into which party is right, which policy is right, who deserves what, when, where, why, how. So this approach has enabled our congregation to actually grow and be more productive rather than doubling down on social justice per se. I have made sure we've doubled down on social welfare. So for example, we built on our campus in Koreatown, which by the way is the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in America, west of Brooklyn. There are 60 languages spoken within five miles of that campus. It is the world and it is the second densest and second poorest district in Los Angeles. We built a social services center on that campus where we this past year fed 200,000 people, gave out 200,000 diapers during the pandemic. You know, imagine being a single parent, poor, out of work, locked it at home with babies and not having diapers. We provide free dental care to 5,000 people a year, free vision care to thousands of people a year, free legal aid services, free mental health services, all in Korean, Spanish, and English. And for me, that's changing another person's life for the better, to me, is more important than arguing about left, right, and center. And to your question about how to meet the needs of so many people, it's not just about what you offer, but it's about what you refuse to engage in because it alienates people. And I think that's a very important, albeit difficult, but very important thing to talk about. Also, one of the ways we meet the needs of so many people, there's a reason we have three campuses. It's not ego. It's called Los Angeles traffic. So we need to be places that people can get to in 15 or 20 minutes rather than an hour and 15 minutes because they're not coming if it's an hour and 15 minutes. You know why? Because we're not the Lakers and we're not the Dodgers and they're not going to do it. So we're geographically diverse also, but in order to be relevant in Los Angeles, you have to be geographically diverse or you're dead. I should just add this. We have 10 clergy. That's another way we meet everyone's needs. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I don't get requested for every bar of mitzvah. We have four pulpit rabbis. We have a school rabbi. One of our pulpit rabbis is one of our camp rabbis. And then we have three cantors. And then we have an emeritus. So we've got a big crew and we're not all the same. We have role players. And so that's another way that we're able to meet the needs of so many different kinds of people because we have different kinds of clergy. Right. The Wilshire Boulevard Temple does an amazing job on social media, especially on Instagram. You know, I really commend yeah. you, the work Thank that you, you guys do. It's clearly it's prioritized. There's not that many shuls that do it like you other than like maybe like it's not a shul, but Chabad.org. But like even them, it's just like a commitment to like educating to this young generation speaking in the infographic language. And it's very important. So in your community, somebody wrote an anti-Semitic epigraph on your property. How did the community respond to this specifically? And, and what's sort of the general approach to the next social media program? Those are two different things, right? So let's talk about yeah. the physical plant issues first. First thing I'll tell you is we have extremely robust security and make no apologies for it. We have armed ex-Marines at every campus. We have cameras everywhere. You don't get in or out if we don't know you're coming. And so that's the first level of making people comfortable. 
By the way, I never feel safer than when I'm at work. My wife worries about me everywhere except the office, right? Whichever <laughs> campus I'm on because yeah. it's so buttoned up and our parents expect it. We have 1,400 kids in our schools. That's a lot of responsibility. Secondly, and this might surprise you, I try not to overreact or overstate the problem. I will still maintain today that if anyone ever asks you where and when in all of Jewish history would you like to have been born as a Jew, you know what you should say? Right now in America, we're the luckiest Jews who ever lived and we're the safest Jews who ever lived. That is not to dismiss the fact that anti-Semitism is on the rise, but from an historic perspective, we should be counting our blessings. And I try to keep people like, hey, not all roads lead to Auschwitz. Instagram is not a boxcar. So let's just dial it back a little bit before we panic, right? Because panic isn't good for anyone. And then I try to, and I don't know if you guys saw any of the stuff I put out, but I try to respond intelligently and effectively to the bullshit that other people spew. You know, I try to respond and yet remain above the fray. And to be honest, sometimes, frankly, it's like shooting fish in a barrel because there's such idiocy out there and such historically inaccurate stuff out there that it's not that difficult to respond to. But when you're dealing with real intellects and the professorial class, you got to be on your game. So I try to represent the congregation and the Jewish people in an intelligent, thoughtful, honest, above the fray, but direct way. And I don't do it often which I also think is very important. I think these organizations that issue statements every freaking time something happens, no matter how small, I think you really lose your effectiveness. So I put out one statement about rising anti-Semitism in the past month and one statement about Israel. I didn't put out 10, I didn't put out five, I didn't put out two, because I think we sometimes often, frankly, overplay our hands when it comes to that. Look, the physical desecration of that outer wall near the sanctuary. I mean, we made it very clear that it was a mentally ill individual and had frankly really nothing to do with anti-Semitism in any kind of organized group or mob. It was just a mentally ill guy at two o'clock in the morning. We have it all on camera. Now, the social media stuff, I have kind of a two-pronged approach, which is for the temple to be putting out all only positive. And for me personally on my Instagram, to be responding, as I said, judiciously, but directly, and then the temple reposts it. So that there's a little bit of distance, you know, between the two. I also, and this does not always make me popular with the other rabbis, I also insist that we speak with one voice as an institution. You are never going to see, as long as I'm around, one rabbi from Wilshire Boulevard Temple talk about the injustices being done in Gaza to the poor Palestinians, you know, by the Israelis, and another rabbi saying, it's not the Israelis, it's Hamas. We speak with one voice, and not everyone likes that, who works with me, but they do respect it. And I think that's also part of keeping the community together and not confusing these parents and confusing these kids. And so I think the more the Jewish community can speak with one voice, and I understand why many times it cannot, but our institution can. And I do everything I can to make sure that's the case. That's great. You're definitely a leading voice in that. So Isaac mentioned to me and just in conversation that you're in LA. So you, you obviously you've interacted with a lot of different, I guess we can call them celebrities, obviously a lot of Jewish celebrities. What's that experience been like? Have you felt any success in a way of bringing any of them a little closer to their Jewish roots or is it more like they'll show up for the holidays? Celebrities are just like everyone else. Some of them grew up with a very positive Jewish identification and they love participating. Some of them grew up with a very negative feeling about being Jewish and they're totally secular. You know, I remember calling Jerry Seinfeld one day many, many years ago, asking him to participate in the Jewish comedy night we were doing for him. And he said, I'm just not that kind of Jew. Well, okay. I mean, I wasn't going to talk him into anything, you know. On the other hand, you know, I call Bob Saget and he says, thank you for asking me. I can't undo or remake someone's childhood. To be honest, celebrities, they're just like everyone else. They just have a little more trouble going out in public, which they both love and hate. And by the way, it's not a celebrity synagogue. We have very few in front of the camera people. We have tons of writers, managers, executives, sort of the business side of show business, much more than the show side of show business. And they're incredibly gifted, talented, ambitious, interesting people, just as teachers are and bankers are. And, you know, it's really not that different. 
I've done a tremendous amount of fundraising in order to keep this whole thing afloat. And people ask the same question about the uber wealthy, you know, the billionaires uh, who belong to the congregation. I said, let me tell you something. I've met nice billionaires and horrible billionaires. I've met nice middle-class people and horrible middle-class people. I have met nice working class people and horrible working class people. It has nothing to do with class in the economic sense of the word. So it really has nothing to do with net worth. It has to do with self-worth. The reason I'm asking is mostly because there's this like notion that these Jewish celebrities go out to Hollywood and then they're self-hating Jews. And I feel like that is more like a myth in a way. And I feel like a lot of them do feel connected. And then you see cases like Josh Gad coming out and speaking. You want to see more guys like Elon Gold, but like not everyone's an Elon Gold. And then everyone gets well, that about Seth Rogen. 80% of Jews in Los Angeles don't belong to a synagogue. Right. Regardless care. of their celebrity status. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're just like everyone else. Right. They're just more visible. And frankly, some of them who do identify positively Jewishly do it in a way where I don't think it reflects well on the Jewish people. I wish they'd just shut up and mind their own business. So just like anyone else. So listen, I've been here a long time. I'm not really enamored of celebrity. My wife and kids roll their eyes all the time because I actually don't even know who celebrities are 99% of the time. Like my daughter say, dad, do you know who that is? Who said that to you? And I really don't. You know, that's that joke Heinrich Heine, the German poet said, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. Celebrities are like everyone else, just more so. Right. So we are sitting with Rabbi Steve Leader of Wilshire Boulevard Temple. You can purchase his most recent book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift on Amazon or wherever you buy books. So we want to talk about your book. Great. The Beauty of What Remains was inspired by the loss of your father to Alzheimer's a few years ago. And the book's title is also aptly named, given that it was issued during the middle of a global pandemic. You've spoken about the importance of floating with grief. Yes. What do you mean by that? You guys are younger than I am. So I'm 61 and everything I was taught about dying and grief was influenced by the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with this idea that, that dying has stages and that grief has stages. And while she's much more sophisticated in the book, the titles imply that grief is a linear process. If there are stages, it's linear. First you feel A, then B, then C, then D, then E, and then you're done. When my father died, I'd already been a rabbi for 30 years. And I thought she was right until my own father died. And then I realized that grief is completely nonlinear. To steal a line from another St. Louis Park boy, Tom Friedman, to paraphrase him, he says anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand the Middle East. I say anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief because grief is nonlinear. So the metaphor that I use now after experiencing my father's death, and the book is really about how my father's death changed my thinking about death and therefore life and how hopefully it will help others live more beautiful and meaningful lives. The metaphor I think is much better is waves. Grief is like waves. They come very close together and very aggressively at first. And with time, they do spread out and grow further apart. But it is also true that you can have a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade even, a beautiful calm seas. And then one day when your back is turned, this massive rogue wave of grief can just take you down. And so to extend that wave metaphor for grief, the old Steve Leader before his father died, the rabbi Steve Leader, not the son Steve Leader, whenever I was faced with a wave of anything, a wave of anxiety, a wave of hard work, a wave of fundraising, a wave of family crisis, my default setting was, I'm going to plant my feet in the sand, chest forward, and I'm going to hold my ground because I am more powerful than any wave. Now, we all know what happens to that kind of person. We end up thrown upside down and tossed around like a dish rag, thrown up against the rocks, frightened and gasping for air. The better way to manage a wave of grief is to lie down when it comes, let it wash over you, and just float with it until you can stand up again. And while you're just floating with it, I learned, because I'm a guy who never asked for help, 
to reach my hand out while I was floating with that sadness. And very often there was someone there to hold my hand and help lift me from my suffering. And that's what I mean by floating with grief. It is, in my view, a better metaphor. It's a better way to go. It's kinder to yourself. And it pays, I think, greater honor to the love and therefore the pain you're feeling for the person who died. Sorry for your loss. That's, yeah, I'm sure that some people resonate. Actually, my grandmother's currently going through Alzheimer's, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a long and difficult road. And it also taught me about the duality of memory. You know, rabbis are full of platitudes about memory. You know, may his memory be a blessing. She'll always live on in memory. We say that stuff to make people feel better. But what I learned because of my father's Alzheimer's and as importantly, his death is that yes, memory is beautiful. And it really, really hurts sometimes. Yeah. It's both. In the book, I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. That's memory. Yeah. So, you know, there's a duality to memory that death teaches you. That's, I think, very important to be honest about. Absolutely. I don't mean to shift completely to a different topic. Go, go but, ahead. Um, so recently, the California State Board of Education was in the news for the last couple of years because of a curriculum, the ethnic studies curriculum. A lot of Jewish organizations um, and, and, and individuals got together to protest against it based on its wording and its positions on Zionism in Israel. And its lack mm -hmm. of mention of Jews as a minority or the Holocaust. Right. It's not only what was there, it's what, what wasn't, wasn't there. Yeah, can, so can you speak a little bit about some of the issues that you may have had with it and what the community did in well, response? Well, to be honest, I didn't get overly engaged in this issue because I'm not a policy wonk. I have no patience for politics or politicians. I have no patience for committee meetings. And I am incredibly busy doing my job that they pay me for, which is to run Wilshire Boulevard Temple. So let me say that, right? I didn't get down in the mud on this thing. What we did congregationally was we did encourage people to write to their representatives. And we did give them the information to share. Look, California is the best of places and the worst of places. It's both. And we can get into the various ways in which that's true. But we were talking earlier about how pendulums swing in the reform movement too far to the left or the right. And this was clearly, in my opinion, a pendulum swinging way too far to the left with a bunch of people hoping nobody would notice, you know, that they could sneak it by. And I'm glad that didn't happen, but it is a good example. And this seems a little duplicitous of me to say after just telling you I don't get down in the mud on these things, but it is a good example of why some of us have to get down in the mud on these things. Why Jewish legislators are important, why APAC is important, why the American Jewish community is important, why the Anti-Defamation League is important. And again, I don't get engaged in these things because I'm super busy doing my thing that I'm good at. But these other people who do these things and are so good at it really, really matter. Uh, so, Rabbi, if you could share a Shabbat dinner with any three figures throughout Jewish history, who would they be? Abraham. I'd really like to know what he heard that day. Lech Lecha. Go forth. So, which day? Was it on the mountain? Or? <laughs> that day when he heard yeah. God's voice for the first time in a way no one else had. Yeah. I'd like to hear about that day from Abraham himself. Mm -hmm. Maimonides. Because I think he was such an astute distiller of Judaism and such an astute observer of human nature. And the last would be my dad, who I, you know, miss every day. Absolutely. Just a note on the Lech Lecha, because I've been personally learning a lot more increasingly the last couple of years. And obviously we're not Abraham, but I think we, we are constantly hearing that voice from God saying, like, get up and go and go for yourself. Right. So it's like all these individual choices that we have during the day, whether they be connected to like Jewish rituals or not, but it could be yes. like a, on an ethical basis, like go for yourself in a way that's good for I you think, and people around you. It's I like, think it's a very astute interpretation because generally people interpret Lech Lecha as go forth. No, it's Lech Lecha. Right? Well, to be fair, the Hebrew is ambiguous. Right. It could be translated either way. Yeah. You know, I could say Lech Lecha Mipo, like, get out of here. Right. I could say that, but Lech Lecha also definitely means turn toward yourself, be true mm. to who you really are and be authentic to who you really are. And I have to tell you, today's, by the way, my 61st birthday. And the older I get, the more I value authenticity in myself, the more I strive for less phoniness and greater authenticity. 
because, you know, rabbi is a pretty weird job. It's a pretty weird role. You get treated in weird ways, good and bad. And it's very easy to be and or to feel somehow like you're acting or you're inauthentic. You know, it's sort of the imposter syndrome that I think a lot of public people have. Frankly, I think everyone has it to some degree. But the older I get, the more I respect this idea of lech lecha. Take the risk to be true to who you really are. Because I don't think it's possible to truly be happy any other way. Like a leave of faith, because he's telling him not just to leave for yourself, but also like leave your father's home. Leave everything yeah, you know. It, it gets concentrically more difficult. Yeah. From your country. Right. You know, your birthplace. Right. From your home. Everything you know. You know. By yeah. the way, to a place I will show you. Like, yeah. Trust I, me. I'm not, yeah, trust me. So <laughs> wouldn't Abraham be an interesting dinner guest? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So as part of a recurring conversation here on the Two Tall Jews show, we like to bring up the word anti-Semitism. Yes. From a historical perspective, anyone that knows the word's origins is aware of its anti-Jewish intention. So what's your opinion on shifting the word to describe Jewish hatred away from anti-Semitism to something less anti-Semitic, like Jew hatred, Judeophobia, or anti-Jewish racism? Justice Potter Stewart, when he was asked by the Supreme Court to define obscenity in a pornography case, said, I can't define it, but I know when I see it. So to be honest, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. Now, I have started spelling anti-Semitism without the hyphen. And I've encouraged other people to do that. But I think, frankly, it is such an esoteric point that it's not going to make any difference to the world or most people. So I I think this is, frankly, much ado about nothing. I think it's going to last about as long as Latin X lasted. You know, <laughs> this is like professorial stuff that the masses don't care about. I think everyone knows what it means. And I think everyone knows when they see it. And I think they're being disingenuous if they pretend otherwise. And I don't think a hyphen or no hyphen is going to make any difference in that story. Yeah. Definitely no hyphen, and then interchange Jewish hatred or Jewish hater. Just I've I've been calling people Jew haters for forever. Yeah. That was the forever. word. Judenhaus. Yeah, those are the words, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem saying Jew haters. I don't. Oh, look, it is. Yeah, we're wrapping up here. So if you had a gigantic billboard that billions of people could see, you could put it anywhere. What would it say, and why? Love your neighbor yeah. as yourself. Don't objectify other people. We all bleed when we're pricked. Have some empathy. I think it would change the world. Love it. Lastly, Rabbi, some of the folks back in the Twin Cities would like to know if you're still a fan of the Minnesota Twins or if you switch leagues. (laughs) All right, here's the answer. Twins, no. Dodgers fan. Vikings fan till the day I die. I am enormously proud of the fact that my born and raised L.A. children are diehard Vikings fans. So, you know, skull. We're going to follow you. We follow the show, but we didn't follow your personal account. So. Yeah. yeah, at Steve underscore leader. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, and happy Thank birthday. you so much, Rabbi. Hey, keep up the work, okay? It's really great what you're doing. All Very right. Good. You be well, guys. Bye. Go Vikes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Two Tall Jews Show. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on Instagram at Two Tall Jews Show and Twitter at Two Tall Jews. And you can also find our umbrella page, Jewish Original Media on Instagram, and the very famous On This Day in Jewish History on Instagram as well, and on Twitter as at Daily Jewish. You can find a link to support us on any of our link trees on Instagram or Twitter or even YouTube. Any and all donations are appreciated and will help in development of all of our content, all of our projects. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening and take care.